0: Show Your home for Car Talk, covering the latest news to the greatest views on the biggest names in performance, sports, and just plain cool driving machines. Let's rev up the conversation. Time for Driven Radio Show.
1: Hey all you gearheads and car fiends, welcome to Driven Radio Show, your weekly automotive happy hour. I am Brett Hatfield, here with my co-host and engineer extraordinaire, Mr. Mark Groves. That's me. And we are coming to you from Driven Radio Studios, which just recently was home to Mr. Jeff Thistaddy when I laid that invitation out for him last week said come on by next
0: time you're in kansas city we'll go get barbecue i was so bummed yeah because i i w- i was ready to go and let's do some barbecue but he had to come in a little bit later for some reasons yeah and, and i uh i had steak with my wife lined up for that uh, night that so was, it, i had to make a hard choice
1: we we still <laughs> had really fantastic we had jack stack and a lot uh, of dude, it yeah and jeff was a little late getting here after he had a, a conversation with a very humorless kansas state trooper <laughs> He managed. He managed to land him a, himself a ticket better than anything I've ever gotten. Oh, my God. And that's saying something. It really is. Jesus. I've had state troopers <laughs> walk up to my car laughing.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, Jeff, Jeff. Jeff. Jeff got one. I'm surprised he didn't have to go appear before a magistrate. You need to get more in western and
0: southern Kansas uh, to he,
1: be able he, to do what you do. He was in western Kansas. And apparently. Oh, is that where,
0: part of that a, where he got it before he got here? Three <gasps> car, a
1: three-car caravan. And everybody was. Uh, oh. Let's say they were all north of a ton and the cop cop picked out him the other thing is when jeff says that that handyman wagon puts out five and a quarter and you can hear oh my lord you could hear it outside the house i knew i knew he was here by the sound before i saw him (laughs) and uh that thing is healthy and he says he's gonna put a whole lot more in it with this new engine that's coming. But anyway, Jeff, thanks for dropping by. We had a great time. Awesome. Uh, he was fantastic and we ate great food and uh, look forward to seeing him again soon. Our special guest this week is Eric Minoff, Vice President and Senior Specialist Director of Bonham's Los Angeles Motoring Department. Eric graduated from Emory University with a BA in History and Political Science, perfect for getting into the car world. Amen. He joined the Bonham's West Coast Motoring Department in early 2007 and subsequently relocated to New York in early 2012. He is now a resident of San Antonio, Texas. Oh! Eric specializes in offering advice on the valuation, appraisal, and sale of collectors' motor cars and motorcycles at auction. Eric, welcome to Driven Radio. Hello. When did you know you were a car person, Eric?
2: Well, uh, they say car, liking cars is a fatal illness and you tend to die with it. Um, <laughs> or from I, it. Uh, yeah, well, from it, with it, either way, you take it to the grave. Um, I kind of got into it because when I was a kid, I uh, stumbled on some car magazines at a friend's house, and um, the uh, I guess that's where my addiction began was uh, reading the buff books, as they used to be called then.
0: That's exactly how I discovered girls. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: just
1: saying. Did you have any influences in your family, or was it just your friends, or uh, it, it, who who else around
2: you was into cars? Well. Um, The closest my family would come to being into cars is that, um, my dad usually, well, he always had a BMW with a stick nice daily. That's not bad. Uh, but that was the extent of it. My family is not a car family. Um, so I, uh, I was the, uh, the outlier in that particular, uh, predilection, but, uh, I, I, uh, forced them to, uh, take me to car shows and stuff. And I grew up in Chicago, so, um you know, same, same sort of Midwestern vibe, but, uh, we have a bigger lake, uh, than <laughs> Kansas city. Um, you know, there's a lot of car events and a lot of things that were going on when I was growing up. So I would go to those. I would also, um, occasionally drag family members or convince a family member to allow me to drag them to, uh, things like the Meadowbrook Concours that used to happen, uh, in, uh, outside of Detroit, uh, and, uh, you know, the events that would just be happening in the Chicagoland area what were your early favorite cars well growing up i pretty quickly became infatuated with um pre-war cars particularly dusenbergs um <gasps> oh. so i really liked Duesenbergs um when i was younger and that's not to say i don't like them now that addiction continues albeit uh, one that is possibly uh, more expensive than a lot of other addictions and is uh, as of yet still out of my uh, current financial reach but uh, that was, I think, one of the things that I really that really drew me uh, initially was kind of trying to trying to see dusenbergs and uh, and and get up close to them, essentially. And fortunately, there's there's not a an innumerable supply, but there's plenty of them uh, around the Midwest that one could see at various shows. And how has that changed over
1: time? What are your favorites now?
2: Uh, my favorite. When people ask me like, "What is my favorite car?" I'll usually tell them it's the one in my garage because um, <laughs> I can actually. And access it, um, but uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm a big fan of um, post-war European sports cars, and then also, uh, I really still do uh, have a lot of appreciation for pre-war cars. Um, I think I've, I've I've started to gravitate more towards uh, some of the smaller European things, like uh, a Fraser Nash or a Lancia Lambda or, a, or a, a Bentley three or four or four and a half something like that, or Bugattis. Uh, there's there's just a, a multitude of things that, that kind of catch my fancy.
0: You know, I'm embarrassed to admit it as much as I, lo- I love uh, like these massive yacht-sized ugly uh, American cars. Go. Here we go. But I really dig like the Healy, uh, what is it, Austin Healy Sprites, little yeah. bug-eye Sprites. Yeah. I. Uh, yeah, slow car fast. Yeah, yeah, just this dinky thing, and it's got that little froggy front on it. I'm like, I really dig this. It's ugly enough to be cute.
1: Well, and he's Eric's absolutely right. More and it's a, a long held uh, belief in the car world. It's more fun to drive a slow car fast than it is to drive a fast car slow. <laughs> uh, you, you also have more venues where you can make that happen. And uh, as much as I love my old Corvettes, they're not that fast. They are not that fast. You know, uh, a mid year big block Corvette would get the crap stomped out of it by a new Camry, but you can take them out and, uh, not far over the legal limit, have a ton of fun in the car and feel like you're really ringing it out. You can't do that with new stuff. No. You
2: just well, fuck I, cannot. If you, uh, if you remember, uh, high school physics, um, <laughs> I, I always equate it to the difference between, uh, uh, speed and velocity, uh, being that, uh, speed is, uh, you know, how fast you're going, uh, overall on your drive and velocity is the average speed you were going the average um you know miles per hour between the two points if you drew a line so velocity is 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 uh, is is very uh easy to nail down that's that's not there's no debating on what velocity is but speed speed is relative you know you can be in an old car and you can really be uh be hoofing it and feel like you're you're giving it the beans and uh you're not actually going as fast as you presume
1: uh, I had that very. Uh, I had that demonstrated to me a few years ago when my wife and I were driving my '60 Corvette uh, down I-70 between Copper Mountain and Vale, Colorado, and I thought I felt like I was driving at Le Mans. I had both hands on the wheel. I was really focused on what I was doing. I was trying to stay in that center lane. We're doing about 75. I felt like I was really ringing it out, until I looked over in the left lane and a gal in a Mazda SUV passed us, one hand on the wheel, the other hand tipping her Starbucks up to her mouth and looked like she couldn't have been more bored.
2: (laughs) you can feel like you're going even faster if your speedometer busted <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: no it's not broken it just dances a little duly noted <laughs> so once you were old enough to drive uh where did you start going to go to car meets and uh to get your fix
2: um well i continued doing it but then i didn't need to drag people as far because i could get in the car and go myself uh, I went to school in Emory in Atlanta, and um, uh, there was a car club. Uh, but I quickly became the president of it, and I started organizing events. And this was when, um, for example, Bruce Weiner used to have his uh, microcar museum down there. So we went to see stuff like that, and um, the now long gone, uh, as is the Bruce Weiner Museum, but long gone Stone Mountain Car Museum at Tucker right there. So we, we would organize events like that. The president of the school at the time. Had a ford model t which we all he was super enthusiastic about us, so he, we all drove it around um so that that was that was kind of the the initial bit was uh was doing things like that and um and then you know just trying to be around cars i uh being in chicago um or from chicago i i didn't have space for a uh, another car i didn't have money to buy one and i never considered Having an old car as a daily because, um, one, it wasn't as safe, but possibly two, and more important, I felt like I was doing a disservice by having a non galvanized car in Chicago where I knew it was just going to melt. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Gets a Midwest eczema, <laughs> <laughs> and automotive herpes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, what
1: fun or interesting cars have you owned, uh, and what's currently in your stable? Is there anything cool?
2: Um, I mean, I like to think they're cool, but uh, uh, not to be too blunt, but it tastes like assholes. Everyone has one, and no one thinks they're stink. Uh-huh. But. Um, I have uh, currently I have a, a sixty eight nine eleven T which has been a consistent Ooh. feature of my garage, um, and a, uh, a less consistent feature is the seventy four Citroen Ami Super Berlin that uh, my wife saw at a show and said she really wanted something like that. So now we have a Citroen that no one knows what it is. <laughs> um, but uh, I've I've also uh, had in my garage everything from a thirty four. Ford hot rod built in 1953 with a Scott supercharged flathead V8 to uh, Alpha Montreal and the 59 Fiat Abarth. All sorts of weird stuff.
0: Tell me about that Citroen by the way, Uh, because I've seen those for sale on Facebook Marketplace, sometimes pretty cheap, and I love the look of them, but what is it for maintenance or finding parts? First of all, I don't think the one he's talking about is the one you're thinking of. Oh, I like the humpier ones, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a 74 <laughs> Citroën. I'm like,
2: that's really close. Yeah, uh, you aren't too far off. So you're probably thinking of a 2CV, uh, the Dushiva. Um This is, the, the Ami was the updated body look, which was, a, I mean, in some respects, it was a bit like New Coke. Uh, uh, in other <laughs> respects, it actually was pretty successful. Uh, so it was it was a, an update that came out in the in the late 50s. It was pretty revolutionary. It was the first car with square headlights, and that, and three bucks, gets you on the train. Um, <laughs> it, it had the same um, mechanical architecture as a uh, a Datsun. So it has uh, two shocks that run the length of the sills on either side, uh, through which the uh, swing arms on both sides of the on each side of the car share one shock. So they're very capable off road, or whatever that's worth. Um, <laughs> the uh the, the so the the early Ami's have a really wild early Ami Berlin's have a really wild uh rear window which slants uh is basically the same angle as the windshield kind of like a Mercury Turnpike Cruiser um there you go mark there's something you can relate and, to oh my god i just uh, finally way, found it wow yeah yeah it's real <laughs> weird looking um so that was the Ami 6 then they had the Ami 8 which still had the you know 700 and something cc uh, twin. Uh, the Ami Super was their, uh, their I'm not going to call it performance model, but it's the <laughs> less slow one. It has a, uh, the engine is from a Citroën CX, so it's a rip-snorting 1054 cc motor with uh, 55 horsepower.
0: With um, chrome which pedals. Which was an
2: increase from 34. Uh, it's got a 4 on the floor as opposed to a 4 sticking out of the dash as a DeShiva has. Oh, um wow. so it'll uh it, it, it's supposedly tow rated at 600 kilograms <laughs> um and uh it it'll maintain highway speeds <laughs> wow and you won't lose it in the parking lot they made about a million of the of the amis overall they made about forty thousand of the amis supers and the rarest one is the uh is, is called the m34 and that is a uh it's the only Citroën that they really made with um, a rotary. Oh, really?
0: Wow. That's yeah, interesting. That was, that was I didn't know that.
2: Coach built car. If, uh, if you're ever in Nashville, you can go to Jeff Lane's museum, Lane Motor Museum, and uh, and go see one there. He's got one along with you know, one for everything all the, else you've never heard of. <laughs> for
1: all the cars I've reviewed for Sports Car Market, and that's not an insignificant sum, I've never run across one of these.
2: Yeah, well, it it falls very distinctly in the category of all rare things are valuable, but not all valuable things are rare. <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry. All valuable things, all rare. All valuable things are rare, but not all rare things are valuable. Yes. There we go. that was what, yeah. was what I was trying to say. I'm looking um, at them. The point is, it's not worth a whole lot of money, but you, you're not going to see one, especially in the United States. The the, the army probably is most famous in pop culture for being on uh, Top Gear when. Uh, uh, the three amigos went to a car auction. You like a uh, collector mm-hmm. car auction, okay. and they all had to. They had a limited amount of money to spend. Is and, this uh, what James Captain, May bought? Or it that's correct? Captain uh. Slow uh, sat <laughs> on his hands the whole auction until the last lot came up, which was a uh, Ami Eight uh, wagon, and that's what he ended up buying.
1: I remember that. I oh. remember it well. So
2: awesome! What's your daily driver? <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid to uh. ask. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, it's not much better. Um, I've got a, uh, I'm, 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 uh, obsessed with, uh, wagons, which in the United States is, uh, not an easy obsession to have. Yeah. Um, come, come on with it. I want to know if you
1: and I like the same stuff.
2: <laughs> it's a, I have a 2019, uh, Buick Regal Tour X that has had the, um, the cladding shaved off of it. And it's got a Regal GS front bumper and bigger wheels and, well, so that's, that's it's not the, the kind one. of wagon that no one knows what it is, and uh, the license plate is unopal because it was built in Germany by uh, the Adam Opel company before General Motors uh, sold that company off.
0: I like that. That's fairly sleek. That actually, yeah, that looks pretty good. It, it, that's that's not bad. It's like if you took one of those. What is it? A Dodge Magnum. The uh, their their version of Daddy's hot rod. Well, if you if but you gave it class. Yeah, if you
1: took a Dodge Magnum and sent it to finishing school. <laughs> You might wind up with Taunt something that like this, yeah.
0: gave
1: gave it a little yeah. bit a little bit of taste. So it's the cheapest car you can buy that you're not going to see going the other direction. Oh, true, true that. Well, I don't know. It's not a Citroen. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it's no Citroen
1: Eight, but it's all right. So, uh, what? How did you wind up working in the collector car world with, with taste like this? You were probably destined for it. You needed to be. But uh, I'm. I'm curious what the story is.
2: um I really liked well i like i liked and, and continued to like, but I liked old cars as a kid, uh, and after uh, college, having uh, you know studied as you had mentioned earlier some very useful and practical real world subjects, um I still wanted to do something in the old car world, so i um kind of bothered anyone within the old car hobby. Collections, museums, auction houses, dealers—until someone would hire me.
0: You, uh, you annoy your way to the top. I love it. Yeah, I, I'm kind of working yeah, on you're, that.
2: <laughs> you're uh, if you're a consistent enough wart, eventually you can, uh, you know, become part of the facade. Who can
1: I pester into letting me do something cool?
0: I know I'm. I'm zipping through my brain's Rolodex, going, okay, okay, who who can <laughs> handle it before they punch me?
1: And. Uh, As if I have to ask, what is your
2: niche or your expertise? I can get by pretty well on most, especially classic era, uh, pre-war cars, European and American. And then uh, post-war up to probably 80s, early 90s, uh, especially European, but also some American, although I lose track of American cars after yeah, but there's, there's not a lot of them worth talking about.
1: There are two. There are so many guys who specialize in post-war American, myself included. So that's probably well covered. I imagine you uh, you did carve out a niche for yourself, knowing what you do know, which would seem to be the lesser body of knowledge for people here. So, Eric, you've been uh, doing this for a while. You've been in business. You've been with Bottoms for quite some time. What previous important or interesting collections have you sold?
2: Um, I mean, we've we've done a number of phenomenal collections. Everything from the Maranello Rosso collection, which included a Ferrari two hundred and fifty GTO in twenty fourteen, which was pretty exciting, uh, setting at the time a world record price for a motorcar at auction. You know, most recently we uh, are coming up. We have a couple of cool collections in Audrain, which is at our auction on Friday in Newport on the twenty ninth the Messenger collection and the Edmunds collection. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, so there are a pair of collections that are uh, exciting estate collections. The Edmunds collection, which is uh, largely pre-war uh, American, mostly Cadillac, uh, including two V-16s, which are kind of bookends, a 31 and a 40, both touring sedans, so convertible sedans, as well as a 1970 Cadillac Hurst, uh, uh, not Hurst, it's an ambulance. Uh, that looks like you'd need the ambulance after seeing how much was spent restoring it. It is spectacular. And a T-grade uh, a fire truck. And then the, uh, the messenger estate collection is uh, a really amazing group of um, mostly post-war European um, sports and sports racing cars, um, including a 300 SL roadster, uh, several alpha GTVs, um, a, Fortune 911 2.7 Carrera RS. It's uh, originally a Touring that's been turned into a lightweight Heli 100M that's been turned into a Heli 100S. Uh, but then there's also like a CSX 8000 Series Cobra and uh, GT350 clones. So, again, something for everybody and uh, at every price range. Two things. One, on the 1970
1: Cadillac hearse, I'm wondering if that's a Miller Meteor uh, commercial conversion. Uh, I'm asking for our friend Chris Deganchi, oh, who will yeah. certainly be listening and wondering
2: about that car. I have to check. It's either that or Hessen Eisenhardt um, okay. that did that car. It's a pretty fabulous thing. I mean, it's just phenomenally done, and the interior includes all the details you would expect. It's uh, yeah, it is Hessen Eisenhardt. Okay, so it's not it's not Marm I mean, It's not it's not a meteor, but uh, uh, Hessen Eisenhardt was a big. Uh, builder of these yeah. things. They're also famous for building, uh, having built the, the Lincoln that uh, Kennedy was shot in, Yes, 100 And then um, on,
1: on the nine eleven two point seven, 2.7 that's being convert, uh, converted to a lightweight, that's no small thing. Uh, the glass was lighter on those and body panels were thinner. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. What else
2: is involved in that conversion? I mean, I, like, like you note, know, it's kind of ticking off the boxes on what made it a little bit lighter. It isn't an enormous amount of weight savings all things considered no but Uh, it wasn't a real big car uh, no it wasn't a real big car um but it's it's uh you know it's really this car is is really something you could buy and just drive the bananas out of it you know it's it's been modified to become a lightweight and it doesn't have its original engine um but it's still a uh, an original 2.7 rs and we have you know build records to affirm that
1: i'm trying to remember all the things they did they uh 86 the carpet and did a uh, thin rubber mat on it and uh you know uh less sound deadening on it i've i've written up a couple of those but it's been a while so i i don't know that i'm recalling everything they did to turn them into lightweight
2: yeah the the primary things porsche did is they were really pioneering the uh more get left scheme that they've perfected
1: yeah they're good at that they're extremely good at
2: that. I think uh, one of my favorites was uh, I had a Porsche collector who had a Corvette, and he told me his Corvette was Radio Delete, and I didn't have the heart to tell him that in the Corvette world, it wasn't Radio Delete. It was too cheap to get radio.
1: (laughs) Could you tell us a little bit about the rebranding of Bonham's cars? Uh, What prompted the change, and uh, what is different about it now?
2: Bonham's kind of grew into what it is when it joined forces with Brooks in uh about 2000 and brooks auctioneers was one of the pioneers in uh the auctioning of high-end collector motor cars and it was started by uh by robert brooks who uh, had kind of helped build up uh, christie's motoring department and uh and he he got some of his uh old foes at sotheby's to join him including malcolm barber and Jamie Knight and and those and those folks to come in and to help create uh, this new thing. So Brooks joined forces with Bonhams, and then Bonhams has grown quite large. Bonhams, in a nutshell, sells everything you don't need that's uh, that's expensive. So watches, (laughs) wine, jewelry, decorative arts, fine art, contemporary art, Japanese. This is why I camp out on their uh, website. Chinese, lots and lots of stuff. We've got something like sixty different uh, collecting fields. That's great and it's one of the reasons that we can really assist in in broom sweeping a lot of estates uh, and other collections but you know with cars a lot of folks are pretty, pretty focused on cars so while it's not that we don't want them to have the opportunity to see what snuff bottles we're selling it's just that they don't want to get buried we don't want people to get buried by the other sales if they're just looking for cars yeah so what we What we decided to do was to create, it's, we're still part of the Bonhams brand and the umbrella of specialties as well as companies that Bonhams has taken under its wing and including auction companies in, uh, in Boston, Paris and Denmark and Sweden. It's allowed us to kind of branch off to have our own sort of venue where, you know, car people can come and just see what car auctions are happening and just see what cars are for sale and, and not get bogged down by the, uh, the other Collecting fields that they may not have as much interest in.
0: For some of these uh, overseas auctions that you do, are you guys like transporting the cars all the way over there or do you do the sales remote? How do you work those? Or are you just selling the cars they have locally?
2: You know, at a live auction, anything we have listed in the auction is going to be previewed and presented at that physical auction. Got it. Okay. All of the vehicles get brought to the sale, wherever that sale may be. If we're drilling this down, you know, the cost to ship a car, even to ship it overseas, is probably about 10,000. It's less than $10,000 if you're shipping it by boat. And if it's a $50,000 car, that's economically not a very advantageous plan. If it's a 500,000 or a million dollar car, then all of a sudden you're talking about what amounts to a fraction of a bid. And if you can get that fraction of a bid, it's it's better to put it in front of the right audience rather than the closest audience.
0: Okay, that's fair. I've seen so many of the cars that I like, the boats, uh-huh. go over to Norway and Sweden and Denmark, and I've just been curious about you know how they how they afford that. But I guess you know when you're talking fifteen thousand here, ten thousand shipping, twenty five k, you're not going to find one of those over there for less than that. That makes sense.
2: That's that's an interesting market in so much that the Scandinavians have a particular predilection towards big american cars they're more likely to buy them over here than over there simply because there are more of them over here and for us they are to a certain extent so common that we sometimes don't fully appreciate them in the same way that they appreciate them over there
1: covering auctions for sports car market i have run into uh... some gentlemen who come over here and will buy several bigger american cars or american muscle cars Crate them up and ship them to, uh, to Europe, particularly Scandinavia, and it's not uncommon to run into that.
2: It's like stereotypes. They're not true 100% of the time, but they occur with enough frequency that they can reinforce the stereotype. In you know, Scandinavian collectors are not exclusively focused on big American muscle cars, but there are a lot of Scandinavians that like that. I mean, if you ever go to Hershey, you walk around and you see these people that look like they're dressed like they've dropped out of a James Dean film, and then you realize oh, they're 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 in from, you know, Sweden or Denmark or Norway. True. Um, so it's it's really an ethos and a lifestyle, and they and they they really appreciate the Americana, and it's it's unique and special. You know, where we are, it's the cars that were everywhere, but that wasn't the case there.
0: Well, our cars also provide them scale because those Chryslers are able to fit a six-foot-four, you know, Viking into them with ease. So you know, I totally get it, and yes. I, that's a knowledgeable viewpoint, and thank you, you know. And you're welcome. Nothing like a 67 uh, Coupe DeVille.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: this is good, yeah.
1: After the Audrain sale,
2: what is the next big event for Bonham's Cars? We've uh, no rest for the wicked. Our next event is literally a week later in uh, – In Belgium, our Zoot sale uh, on the beach in Belgium there, in conjunction with the Zoot Grand Prix, and we've got a really spectacular collection of or selection of pretty much all post-war European sports cars, which is what that event tends to focus on. Being offered everything from uh, a Ferrari 250 TDF to a Bugatti EB110 GT to an amazing collection of ultra low miles low mileage. Tend to sample orange spec Aston Martins, uh, all all more modern Aston Martins than the last. Oh, wow! Orange you know, Aston 10, 15 Martins. Years. That would be they're interesting. They're all orange. <laughs> you can probably guess what co- what country they probably have come from. But they're all <laughs> orange.
1: <laughs> in your opinion, where do you think the collector car market is headed, and what can we expect in the near future, or even five years from now?
2: I mean, this is this is the probably number one question I get asked. More and more, it has has more to do with economics than it does with interests. But, um, you know, the market right now, there there seems to be increasing interest in uh, Japanese cars. We're seeing the same shift that we saw 40 years ago towards European cars, which is to say that 40-ish years ago, you told people, oh, you know, it'd be great, like a really fun two-liter European car, like a Porsche. Most Americans would go, why would you want... A little rinky dink car like that when you can get a big American car. And then everyone decided European cars are pretty cool. And then American cars are pretty, and then the European cars are pretty special, in part because there was much greater acceptance of European cars as luxury cars. Mm -hmm. Japanese cars, 40 years ago, they didn't have a huge amount of traction in the United States as being luxury cars. But now younger collectors have grown up with the likes of Lexus and Acura and Infiniti and uh, Genesis and things like that. And they've also grown up driving and you can't see this cuz it's radio so I'll describe it I'm making air quotes driving all these phenomenal japanese cars in games like Gran Turismo and things like that Yeah. so okay. they they're, they're being informed by by this and you can see it in in the way that vehicles that were in like Need for Speed the original which again you know that that is a game that came out in like 1994 so uh if you were playing that when you were 15 you're now in your 40s um, and you might have a little bit of money in your pocket to spend on a not very useful, <laughs> impractical <laughs> old car. Um, uh-uh. guilty. Yes, <laughs> charged. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a disease. No one said it was, it was a practical <laughs> one. Uh, but so there's, there's a big focus now, I think, an increasing focus on Japanese cars. Also because they, they are, uh, in many regards, a, a more affordable way to get into the hobby. But, um, I mean, there's, there is, there's um, you know, again, greater interest in the, the usual sort of uh, nostalgia collecting that occurs. I like to say there's a 35-year trailing average between the amount of time it takes to go from being a zit based teenager uh, with pictures of the car on your wall to being a, you know, fully formed adult with enough time and money to burn on on a car. So you're seeing increasing interest in 80s and 90s sports and supercars. You can just look at the prices of Lamborghini Countachs and Ferrari Testarossas and Acura NSXs as a yeah. as a barometer for how that market has changed. I'm old um, enough to
1: remember seeing Countachs selling for eighty grand.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, and I'm and really then, uh, I'm really disturbed by is, that. <laughs> uh, there's there's obviously the the market right now, and I think this is more of a transactional investment market than it is an market necessarily but for uh, uh, modern super and hyper cars which is it leads into if you've ever seen the movie the jerk uh you know enough of this old stuff bring me something new uh <laughs> it's you know a cage rattling for whatever is the next car and being able to be the first to have it yeah and now that you know it's it's becoming harder and harder to necessarily get your hands on an allocation for the I don't know, Porsche 911 Dakar or something like that there's a, a a burgeoning secondhand market for things of that nature. If you were spending your own money, what would you buy right now? I personally am an incredibly good barometer of what to buy if you want to have fun but not to make money. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I would. I, I I like. I mean, I, I, it's a combination of what what is within the the realm of my own checkbook and also things that I think would provide fun and enjoyment. I I like weird things, so it's probably not a good idea to think of what I would buy. But you know, I I think it really depends on what your use case is. If you want to do an event of some type, think about what event that is and what types of cars apply. uh, You know, qualify for that event and keep yourself open. If you're looking to do like the California Melee, for example, or another or the Colorado Grand, you know, you're limited to pre 1957 slash pre 1960 cars. What would fall into that group, I mean, you can get some great, there's obviously great European cars, the price points of which are going to be a little bit higher. There's a limited selection of good American cars you can get from that era that'll be sporty, but uh, it really depends on sort of what you're looking for. If you're looking for something later, if you're doing something like the Copper State 1000, which is $373, and you've you have opened yourself up quite a bit to a, a wider selection of motoring opportunities. Uh, to to me, it always you, you want to sit down and think about what what are you going to do with this, and then work backwards from there. All right,
1: Eric. Final question,
2: <laughs> and this
1: this is the one that uh, that we always really relish. Uh, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car?
2: I owned an Alfa Romeo Montreal, and in 2017, my friend uh, Bradley Price of Autodromo. If you ever need? phenomenal motoring watches or driving gloves. And I, I already guess guess have two pairs of the driving
1: gloves. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well,
2: uh then, then you can attest to how wonderful they are, they are with his watches now. Uh Bradley and I had this car together and we decided to drive it from New York, just outside New York City, to uh to Montreal for the fiftieth anniversary of the release of the Montreal at Expo sixty seven in Montreal. Uh, there was a big alpha the Alpha North Alpha Club North America was having their annual meet there. And the featured vehicle was uh, the Montreal, obviously. So we, you know, set off in our Montreal. And I, I don't know how familiar you or your listeners with the Montreal, but the Montreal is uh, um, it's essentially very sort of facetly related. But it's, it's related to the Tipo 33 race car. And it has a twin cam 2.6 liter V8, 190 horsepower. It's a really wonderful machine, but Alpha really thrived on making twin cam four cylinders. So a twin cam eight cylinder just has twice as many problems. <laughs> um, and uh, they're not, they, they also for a long time languished in value. And when a vehicle languishes in value, the number one knock on effect of that is deferred maintenance. Yes. Because uh, if if a car is not worth a lot, then the people who buy it oftentimes don't have the money to deal with the maintenance, especially because the maintenance cost doesn't appreciably change with the value.
1: For anybody who's wondering what the what he's talking about, take a portion of nine twenty eight to the next order of magnitude.
2: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh we we got in the Montreal, which we had we had had a significant amount of service done to it after he purchased it. And which is something I recommend to everybody. When you buy a car, I don't care where it's from, whether it's from a dear friend, an auction, a dealer, Craigslist, I don't care how nice it's described how nice it looks you take that car to a mechanic first thing and get it sorted to make sure it's it's actually as good as you want it to be in any case we had gotten it sorted to a level that we thought was good so we took it we drove it we took it up I- i-87 and all the way up to the border got to the canadian border the canadian border guard asked us what our business is in canada we said we're going to montreal in our montreal for the 50th anniversary of the release of the montreal in montreal and he went there is a car named a Montreal. Uh, and the only part of the car that says Montreal on it is the ashtray. So we pulled out the ashtray and showed him. And he said, we'll have fun, gentlemen. Uh, we went up to Montreal. We drove around the city. We were the only Montreal that had driven to the event. Uh, on the tour, we were one of maybe five or six of the Montreals to make the entirety of the tour without breaking down. And then we drove our Montreal back to new york any major
1: issues along the way
2: none at all unbelievable fantastic nice Bird like a kitten and montreal's just have enormous power so it's a phenomenal touring car and not hard on the eye no no not hard on the eye although the <laughs> uh the speaking of eyes one of the uh the minor faults was it has those eyelashes that go over the headlights mm-hmm. they sort of Basically, no practical function. <laughs> um, well, the one of the pneumatic motors for, I think, the left headlight was not working. So, whenever we turned the headlights on, we had to get out of the car and put that highlight <laughs> down. Oh, good
1: Lord. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of Corvette owners, third-gen Corvette owners with vacuum problems who know exactly what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, yeah. Same, it's the same thing. It's yeah. These vacuum uh, servos that don't work all the time
1: uh, abs- and you end up winking absolutely <laughs> we've been speaking with eric minoff vice president and senior specialist director of bonhams los angeles motoring department eric please take a moment and tell us where we can find you and bottoms online and on social media
2: sure you can always find us at uh, www.bonhamscars.com www.bonhamscars. you can also find us on instagram at Cars. And, of course, wherever fine cars are sold, we have uh, auctions in Scottsdale in January, Amelia, uh, this year it's the very end of March, uh, February, but usually in early March, June in Greenwich, Connecticut, August in Quail Lodge, and then at uh, Audrain in the end of September this year, early October. And then we also, of course, have auctions around the world, including uh, in the UK, Europe, and uh, we have uh, our first sale in Abu Dhabi in conjunction with the Grand Prix coming up on November 25th of this year.
1: Very good, Eric. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. It was, it's was it been a pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you at uh, an upcoming event. You know, believe it or not, I think I've run into Eric before. <laughs> <laughs> You've run into everybody. I don't know how well, you even keep it straight. No, no, no. It, here's the thing, though. Working for Sports Car Market, they've sent me everywhere. Yeah. I've gotten to cover everything, and it's been a ton of fun. And One of the really unseen benefits of that is I just get to meet so many people. I'm horrible at remembering people's names i'm so bad at it so, so if i meet you and i say your name 14 times in the first three minutes yeah. it's because i'm trying to remember your name later it's i am I'm, I'm not special or maybe i am but i'm trying to make sure i remember your name here's the thing if i run into you at an auction and you're there with your car i remember your car oh that's too years. funny years yeah but i'll space your name and here's a good example Covering bottoms at uh, at the quail in um, see two thousand twenty one I think it was okay. uh, I met a gentleman there who was selling a little gray TVR and the interior they had redone in a tartan pattern, and his wife had made him a tartan vest oh. to go with the car. I can't remember that guy's name, but I won't forget that car and that guy in his vest forever, <laughs> forever, ever. And I just, I can, I can remember almost every car I covered there and where it was on the field or in the tent. Oh, nice. But I can't remember people's names. No. Uh, that's that's my that's the
0: car fixation that drives all this crap. My name is 55 Plymouth.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah, You. Well, Rondo's given me a cartoon. I've
0: got it. It's on
1: my computer and it's two guys. You know, it's kind of a line drawing, but it's two guys in business suits and one and they're shaking hands. And one says to the other, I can't remember your name, but you drive the 69 Cranberry Red Chevelle with a 396 and a four speed. Right. And that's exactly how my mind works. And uh, Eric, if we have met before, I'm very, very sorry. sorry. Uh, (laughs) I got a bit of a head cold, and I'm full of cold medication right now. So the fact that I even got the show
0: done—yeah, you chuck full of (laughs) scissor—yeah, a little surprising. I even made it this far. (laughs) I was wondering which of your eyes was going to look at me, so I'm all good. Not neither of them. Yeah. (laughs) One of them's looking at the screen. The other eye's looking at the first eye. So many marks, a little time.
1: (laughs) So this is why I have a co-host. Thank you. Uh Thank you so much for spending time with Driven Radio. We're really baffled why you do. We... (laughs) We love what we do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our listeners. You can find us online at DrivenRadioShow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Driven Radio Show. And on LinkedIn, Stinkin' Driven Radio Show was already taken, so it's Driven Radio Show Podcast. Yeah, baby. You can also find us anywhere, find podcasts, or heard. I am Brett Hatfield from Mark L. Groves. Yep. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Driven Radio.